Welcome back, everyone, to Politics and Perspective, Episode 3. I'm Taylor Wong. I'm Cole Reynolds. And our plan for today is that first, I guess, we're going to discuss the results of the presidential debate, which was a couple days ago. We're also going to tie in some voter intimidation that's been in the news recently, as well as swing state, um, analyze it, analyzing the swing states of the election in a couple of weeks. You might be uh, wondering, like, why are we talking election predictions now? There's still a week to the election. There's so much that could change. But we have a really special surprise for you next week in next week's episode. So stay tuned for those announcements. Um, we're really excited for both these episodes. So to start off, I mean, um, we had a, our second and final, thank God, debate <laughs> of, the, of the debate season. And this wasn't, I mean, this is not a very unique take by me, but this wasn't the just food fight that was the first debate. It was a lot more civil. It was a lot more controlled, especially on the president's part. And um, I want to hear your take on it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you you kind of you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. It was definitely more civil, more composed, less a lot less interruptions. I think uh, I think the muting of the mics had to do a lot with that more civil tone because obviously they made a new rule that in the first two minutes they were going to mute the other person's mic so that it could um, so that no one could be interrupted in that those opening two minutes where you could get kind of your opening thoughts out. And I think even though even though it wasn't completely utilized for the rest of the debate. I think it definitely hung, it was kind of something that was there and kind of something that even the, the president was somewhat fearful of because his mic, we saw his mic did get turned off once. Um, so I think it was kind of kind of looming over his head and contributed to his more civil tone. Um, well, yeah, I want to add, go ahead. I want to add like, um, Trump had that more civil tone, but we also did get to see the true Trump, especially later in the debate. Um, and I wonder if the fear of the microphone turning off, um, kind of reduced over time and, um, and it was, it just, was this the new version of Trump, which I don't know how many people can believe, or is it just Trump in disguise? Um, fear. well, it was, it was pretty funny. I was watching with my mom and my mom was joking, like maybe they gave him drugs. Cause it seems like the first 30 <laughs> minutes, he was the first three minutes. He was super calm, composed. And then it, it started, I mean, it wasn't as bad as the first debate, but it kind of started to spiral from there. But so, so in all, in all honesty, I, I don't know. It seems like his campaign, it seems like his campaign advisors definitely told him to like dial it down a bit because kind of his performance in the first debate didn't resonate with the American people. But at the same time, he, I think he kind of, so I think he kind of took that advice, but he also pushed back on it to an extent in that he did go on the attack in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. And someone else who went on the attack um, was Biden, which is something really we haven't really seen throughout even the Democratic primary debates is that Biden has had a lead for a lot of this election cycle in the primaries in this presidential election. And he's he's been like, oh, don't screw it up, don't screw it up, don't screw it up. And finally, he kind of took the gloves off this debate and went after Trump on a lot of a lot of different things. But one thing that I don't know, which sticks is every debate, two, three, four times, um, Kamala and Joe Biden would always recite the statistic, like 220,000 dead Americans. I have reservations about that stat. I think it's, obviously I think it's true, but I don't know if that has the same impact that people think it does. I think to a lot of people, it's easy to look at 350 million total um, inhabitants of the United States and say, oh, 200,000, 220,000, that's nothing. And the whole misinformation machine saying that it's only people who are about to die next week, um, just sitting around waiting um, for their time to come and finally coronavirus um, was the nail in the coffin. I think that narrative is, um, is the narrative is that those are the people. And in reality, it's really the people who are, um, who are helping out with the kids, who are really lively people who might be advanced in age, but are still very, very capable functioning members of society. So to tie it all back together, I don't know if people feel as though that stat really means so much as it should. And I think that this is what the Biden campaign is banking on, is this 
this huge death toll from Trump and his administration's ineffectiveness in Corona, but I don't know if that stat is the one that actually nailed it home just like I think, like it really should. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'd have to agree with you. I think personally, I think personally a better stat that they use, and I did see Biden use it, he doesn't use it as much, is that when they say, look, if people, if everyone starts wearing a mask, you can save like 100,000 lives. I think that's a much better, I think that's a much better statistic to use just because it's kind of like, it's kind of like, it's almost like common sense. It's like, look, if I'm president, here's what I'm going to do to reduce the death count instead of kind of blaming, just blatantly blaming Trump for every person who's died of COVID. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And I think um, that's a much better way to highlight Biden's overall message, which is of um, progressivism and to have a plan. And I think one of the one of the parts of the debate that really showcased that is the end. And I don't know how many people made it to the end of the 55, I think, million who watched the debate at one point. Um, Biden, we saw the contrast of their visions for America. And Biden was so positive. He was like, we can grow the country. We can end systemic racism. We can protect jobs and also move towards clean energy. And we, and right before that, we saw the contrast in Trump, he said, we'll take away your jobs. Biden will make you less safe in America. He'll take away the police, et cetera. And it shows how his campaign is focused on fear mongering while Biden's campaign is focused on hope. And obviously that's the recipe that drove eight years of the Obama, um, eight years of Obama. Um, and I, I'm really interested to see how that messaging uh, plays. Definitely. I want to, I'm and adding on to that. I want to kind of go back to your previous point about how well Biden performed. I think this was Joe Biden's night, you know, Trump in the first debate, the first debate was kind of characterized by Trump kind of Trump law. I would say Trump lost the first debate in contrast in this debate. I think Biden won. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a difference between the two because in this debate, Trump, Trump wasn't, he wasn't terrible. Like he wasn't great. He wasn't spectacular, but he wasn't like bad compared as the first debate. He got he kind of did what he was supposed to do. He got his message across, but I think Biden did exceptionally well. You know, he he had an inspired performance. Like you said, he went on the attack. He defended his proposals in his conclusion when he talked about hope, kind of a positive future that, that just tied it all together for me. So I think this was Joe Biden's night and I think Joe Biden won the debate. Exactly. And I think um, he hasn't had a strong debate performances in all of the uh, debates this year. Um, but I think this is a great time to do his best work. And I mean, Trump also did do a much, much better job. But um, but Biden, Biden really certainly, he certainly countered with his strongest performance. And um, I, I really want to see if, um, also one, one weird note that I noticed is that something I, this is kind of just right, something I remembered right now and it's like they put always put Biden on the right side of the screen and Trump on the left side of the screen and I wonder if that's intentional because uh statistics studies show that people pay more attention to things on the right side of their screens that's why left-handed candidates when it's flipped on tv left-handed candidates gestures are much more impactful that's why one of the reasons why we've had so many left-handed presidents is that their gestures are more impactful mm. on TV, and that might be something to watch out. Is that they always put Biden on the right side of the screen, where most Americans focus their eyes, and Trump on the left, where humans have just a natural um, inclination to look away from. Mm. Uh, I wonder that kind of just popped in my head right now, and I wonder um, if that's intentional, or and they're trying to help Biden, or um, they're. It's just kind of a random coincidence that. Hey, don't tell the don't it, tell the don't tell that to the conservatives. They're gonna start. They're gonna, the start going on, they're gonna go on their fake news tirade again. Bro. Exactly. God forbid the QAnon support yeah, behind this. No. Um, but, but yeah, and one one last takeaway from the debate is that Trump lied more. He was calm in his demeanor. Don't get me wrong, but Trump went off on the lies. Like. Uh, what did you see from his lies? Well, kind of, kind of just a continuation of the norm. I mean, a Washington Post article that I read recently, that's been there kind of for a while, but I looked at recently, said that he's made more than twenty thousand lies or false statements or misleading 
statements during his time as president, which is which is basically unheard of. So I think I think for the, a lot of American people, they've kind of it's kind of become the norm that he's going to say he's going to say things that are misleading or false or and just not necessarily true in general. And I think for his supporters, his, frankly, his supporters don't really care that he makes these statements because they they, they still love him either way. And exactly. I think for people for Democrats or people who support Biden, they they just hate him so much that I don't know. So I don't know. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that yes, he made these statements in the debate, but like in the long run, I don't think it really influences the election. But I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I think I have a theory about this, and I was sitting on the couch watching the debate, thinking about it. And I think there's just a there's a science to his bullshit. There, and like, look, nobody, and I mean. Trump lies constantly. You've attested to it. Like, what did you say? 20,000? 20,000, yeah. I mean, it's just constant. We can see that in his debates, his press conferences, his rallies. It's just like bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Just like 24-7. And nobody that I know likes dishonesty. Um, But Trump somehow keeps winning. People keep buying in. And I'm sitting there on Thursday, and I'm like, there has to be a science to his lies. And... um, I think the problem is the fact checkers, not Trump. And it's easy to fact check, for example, like Trump has done more for black Americans than any other president in history. Like that's just absurd. Uh, or that Moscow gave Biden 3.5 million. That's just false. And fact checkers take this easy bait and they just run with it. They're like, my job is easy. I can just go on TV and be like, no, that's not true. And that's what they do. But what happens is that some crazy idea that Trump has that was previously like relegated to QAnon message board oblivion is now being broadcast by CNN, CBS, ABC, NBC, you name it. And um, because of this, like the bullshit is just reaching more people. Like it's just like a bullshit wave over households in America. And look, there's a lot of dumb people in America. And when you excite their conspiracy minds, Somehow, I mean, um, people are definitely going to run with that. And I think the networkers, the networks and the fact checkers are uh, the ones that are legitimizing these, this, the dumb crap that he says. And, um, and it really, really plays into his, his, his whole campaign strategy. Yeah. And I, you know, I think so much of it has to do with so much, have, have, so much of it has to do with Twitter and because Twitter, he kind of uses as an outlet for for these lies and publishing a lot of these misleading claims. And by the way, I want to note here that if if you've made it this far and you haven't checked out our second episode, go watch it either right now or after the conclusion of this episode. We talk all about social media's influence on politics. So if that's something that interests you, I encourage you to check that out. But yeah, I mean, Twitter, I think he he has does a lot of his misleading claims on Twitter. And I think that's how he reaches his audience a lot. Yeah, and I think the other aspect to his lies, and that's something that Twitter really helps, is that there's so many lies that, I mean, just the fact checkers just can't keep up with it. I mean, there's a certain strategy to just being like an avalanche of misinformation that just, it's just constant, and that how many things can you actually fact check? You know, like, there's some things that he says that you just just can't fact check. Like the lowest IQ migrants are the one that's come back to the their court dates. Like, look, we all can see that that's just like a made up statistic, but there's no way to actually fact check that. So I think um, they, the fact checkers just can't keep up with the amount of lies, especially that are coming in on Twitter. So I think it's really an effective strategy um, to just kind of normalize lying to the American public so that we don't even bat an eye uh, when it does get called out. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think our what we've, what we've been talking about brings me up to a question I have. Obviously, if there's one kind of moment that stood out to me personally, it was when Trump said he's the he's done the most for black people, except for maybe Abraham Lincoln, and that he's like the least racist president in the room. I think that whole exchange stood out to a lot of people, including me. So I want to hear kind of your takeaways from that. He didn't say he was the most racist or least racist president in the room. He's, he's the no, he says the least. No, he says the most. He's the least racist person in the room, and he's the president. It was a black moderator. Are you serious? Like, yeah. I wish you had just been like, I'm, I'm half black. How, how are you less racist than me? And um, ah, uh, it was just, it was just, it, 
it's one of those things where you expect like Trump says a lot of stuff just like off the cuff, like I'm the least racist person. Who knew that that would become like a focal point of his campaign? You know what I mean? Like you would expect him because he said that before, but you would expect him to say it like once and then his campaign manager would be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly. don't go there. He keeps... But he says it every debate, every rally, and every time they're talking about race in America, it's, it's really honestly just dumbfounding for me, that claim. It's yeah. And uh, one, but one, one serious issue that was touched on in the debate is um, voter intimidation and um, outside influences. The same people that influenced the 2016 election are trying to get their hands dirty in this election. And I think Biden mentioned it at one point. Um, But, but this is, this is bigger than any one election because this is, a serious threat to our democracy and our way of life. Definitely. Um, I think, I think the mail, I think that having, having the mail in voting that we have is kind of playing a big part because Trump in particular, as well as many other people have kind of been push, pushing forward this, this idea that, Oh, the mail, mail in voting is rigged. Like people are going to vote like multiple times and that's going to kind of taint the results of the election. And I think that kind of quest, that kind of questioning of, the electoral process is, is kind of paving the way for these foreign influences to have a big impact on the election. I know I saw a news article that said that people in, in a couple states are getting are getting emails from from Russian or I think Russian Iranian and Iran are behind it. And they're getting emails that say, we see that you're a registered Democrat. We, we found the voter registration. If you don't vote for Trump, like some work, something's good, bad's going to happen to you. It's basically like a threat. It's voter basically voter intimidation and its finest, which is, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy and un, almost un, I mean in the lot unheard of since the Jim Crow era almost, um, and it's crazy to think about we're like kind of a model we're supposed to be a model of democracy for the whole world, but look at kind of the state of our elections they're really being questioned. Yeah, I think I think with the the threat was that they were gonna send the Proud Boys to come. Uh, yeah. Oh, that, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's and I think. Biden mentioned that, but that is really, really scary. I mean, that is stuff that goes on in the fake democracy that you see that crumble after a couple of years is this voter intimidation, these rigged elections. Um, that's the kind of stuff that that doesn't let democracy flourish. And if we don't get this under control, I mean, I don't know if we're going to, if you and I will be able to vote one day, because who knows what our country will look like in 2024, especially with another Trump. Uh, presidency um but but one thing that was that was interesting an interesting revelation this last week was that um hopefully everyone saw that rudy giuliani got caught in a compromising position with his hand down his pants um in front of a reporter that he believed was 15 years old um as part of the film of borat um and I see Borat came running in and stopped it before it went any farther because probably Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Borat, was probably worried about his younger actress who was, uh, Rui Giuliani was making some weird moves on her. But look, it doesn't even matter if Rui Giuliani was tucking in his shirt like he claims. Um, it's like he got, he fell for this prank by Sasha Baron Cohen and it's not even it's like how can you fall for that especially when the Trump administration has been like Rudy is a quick-witted guy he can sniff out um anything to like compromise our administration or our country and look these if these meetings if he's if Russia is truly using Giuliani as a pawn that can't be true because he is too quick-witted and too uh, he doesn't fall for these kinds of things but look, if Sasha Baron Cohen could get him to stick his hands down his pants on film, like a Russian spy or Russian operative, like, come on, it just proves that Giuliani is not smart like the Trump campaign makes him out to be. And he is susceptible to being manipulated by foreign influences. And that could be where the Hunter Biden story came from. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I'm going to be totally honest. I haven't really read that much about this story, but yeah, I think you, I think you covered it well. It's kind of, 
I don't know how I don't know how he kind of gets out of this situation. It's kind of a lose lose either way, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and if you haven't seen Borat, take a look at it. I mean, it's it's a it's a funny movie, especially I'm not going to spoil it all because um, because there's just so many gems in there. It's shot in Texas. Obviously, Texas is not quite the same uh, in terms of morally and politically as the uh, Bay Area. So it's definitely a culture shock watching it. Um, definitely. And well, I think I think we sh- I think we should kind of move on to the election. It's kind of crazy to think that the presidential election is 10 days away, right? Like I remember, I remember vividly four years ago watching the results come in and then they announced Trump is the next president. I was like, what, what the hell? How did this happen? That's kind of why I got interested in politics. Actually, that election had such like an impact on me that it kind of got me interested in politics. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's 10 days away. The polls are kind of showing that Biden has a pretty big lead in particular in a lot of key swing states, but we know we can't trust the polls because of what happened four years ago. So what do you, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think this is the segment where we're supposed to make a decision. And uh, this is, I mean, how can you, it's just so up in the air in so many places. And uh, I know this is controversial take, but I'm going to go Trump wins the election. And it's, no. and I think I, I'm going to say it. And I think we're going to, move on to swing state breakdowns but i think that um trump is going to come out on top and it's not and i think it's safe to assume that he's going to lose the uh popular vote but i think just the way the electoral college is set up it just makes me cynical and it's 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 not going to be the american public's fault it's going to be the winner take all electoral systems vote that trump will win in 2020 what about you that's crazy. Okay. I would have, I'm going to have to disagree. I think Biden wins. And I know a lot of people watching this are going to say, oh, everyone thought Hillary was going to win too. Look what happened. They were in such a similar position. But Biden is a distinctly different candidate than Hillary for a few reasons. And I guess I can break him down. First of all, he's like, he's less, he kind of has less controversy. Hillary had the email, Hillary had the email scandal that she called Trump supporters a basket of deplorables. Um, that made her an extremely unpopular candidate. And I don't think Biden, I don't think Biden has that. I think Biden's pretty likable. I think these debate performances he's done that he's done well in recently have kind of shown that he doesn't that the Hunter Biden controversy, it's almost kind of Republicans kind of grasping at thin air to look for things, things wrong with him. Um and this and yeah, and then another thing is that Biden the, the obviously because of the Electoral College, so much importance is placed on swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. And I think unlike Hillary, I think a lot of those people can relate to Biden because of where he's from. He's obviously from Scranton, Pennsylvania. He grew up, he had a working class background and then he moved to Delaware, became, became an attorney in, as he talks about, like a, prom, a predominantly black side of Wilmington, Delaware, kind of helping the people there. And Hillary Clinton didn't really have that. Hillary Clinton grew up pretty wealthy, Ivy League education, you know, more. So yeah, I think, I think a lot of people in the swing states can relate to Biden more. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that if we've learned anything from kind of what's hap- been happening in the lead up to the election is that voter turnout is going to be most likely a record high um, because so many people, there's so many kind of movements to encourage people to vote. And a lot of younger people who are going to be voting for the first time are probably going to come out and vote. So yeah, I think it's going to be kind of close, but I think Biden's going to come out on top. I think there's one statistic that I found, which just my heart sank because obviously I hope Biden wins but I'm obviously calling it different, um, that would counter your last point that a lot of first-time voters will come out for Biden. Republicans have registered a significant amount of voters more than Democrats this year. Um, the The amount of new voters that Republicans have, the I mean, the state Republican parties have been working really hard to register new voters. And I mean, it's not crazy. It's not like twice as many voters but it is a size it's like a third more i think than democrats and um so when such a tight election last time um and first-time voters are proven to vote more than voters that were registered a while ago um it could it could spell big issues that republicans have an extra um extra 
100,000 voters that they've registered. Um, and so that's why that's one of the statistics why I'm calling it for Trump. Yeah, okay. Well, before we get to kind of analyzing the swing states, I want to ask you about kind of the, in, the importance of third-party candidates in this cycle, because in 2016, obviously, Gary Johnson, the Libertarian nominee, actually got like a pretty significant amount of vote. I have to look up what it is. It might have been like 5% almost. Um, no, maybe not Maybe not that high. I don't know. I'm looking it up right now. Maybe, maybe I think it was 3%. Um, which so maybe combined third-party vote was 5% then. Yeah, Jill Stein know. got some votes, I know, um, especially in some key swing states like Ohio and um, Pennsylvania, I remember, or not Pennsylvania, some key swing states in 2016, Jill Stein yeah, got... Like Gary Johnson got 3.28% and Jill Stein got like 1%, and then a couple other people got less than one. But yeah, but going back, going back to my question, obviously, I think that was actually a significant portion of the vote, third party last time, which we hadn't seen in a while, and... I don't know. I feel like the third party, uh, the third party candidates aren't getting as much media coverage this cycle. So I want to hear kind of if you think that's going to have an impact on the election. Well, I've definitely talked about this before, how I just despise, despise voting for third party candidates and especially not voting, too. Um, I think if you like nobody votes for a third party candidate thinking they're going to win the election. Like, I don't think one person cast about for Jill Stein being like, Oh, I think Jill has a good shot. Um, I think if you vote for a third party candidate or don't vote, I think for the next four years, you have no ground to stand on to criticize your government or to say that they're doing the wrong job because um, you intentionally threw away your chance to make that happen. Obviously one vote won't swing the election, but um, symbolically, you threw away your chance to make your voice heard in the election. So if you felt like it was better that you had a better state of mind for not voting for one of those candidates or something like that, I don't think you deserve the right to criticize the outcome of the election because you decided to re refrain from um, casting your ballot to actually change the course of the election. So that's my, that's my opinion on people who vote for third-party candidates, but hopefully um, their third-party candidates are kind of silly this time around, I think. Yeah. Howie Hawkins might get some votes as a Green candidate, but I don't think, I think um, Trump and Biden will get the vast majority. Yeah, I think so too. And in, partic in particular of what you said, if theoretic theoretically, if someone votes third-party and Trump wins the election, I don't think they really have any ground to criticize Trump because a third-party vote is in essence, a vote for Trump, because obviously there's more Democrats than are like, like without talking about voter registration or turnout, there's more dead people who are have believe in the Democratic Party platforms than Republicans. So on paper, the Democrats should win every election if it was purely popular, but I guess. But what I'm trying, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, if not writing someone in voting third party and any vote that's not for Biden is in essence a vote for Trump in that sense. Exactly. And um, and especially it comes down to votes in third parties for um, swing states. And um, like I think I referenced it earlier that a lot of um, swing states voted for third party candidates at a too, too high margin last election cycle. So with that being said, I want to ask you um, what what's what's a state that you think is crucial to the election that we're going to know a lot of other states, how they're going, but what is um, your number one state that you're paying attention to on election day? It's got to be Florida for me. I think Florida is is the most important state period um, for, for both campaigns, but especially for President Trump, because if Trump loses Florida, he basically can't win. I think it's pretty much game over for him. If we hear on election, or oh, we won't hear on election night, but if he, yeah, if we hear he loses Florida, it's basically game over for him, regardless of the other turnouts. In the case of Biden, I think Biden can lose Florida. It'll make it a little harder for him to win, but I think he can afford to lose Florida. But never, nevertheless, I think it's still the most important state. Also because, because of just how close it is. Ohio was in the past kind of the presidential bellwether, but I think that has gone to Florida as Ohio has kind of shifted more, more Republican. And it's, main, it's mainly due to their demographics, right? Florida has, such a, has a very large elderly population to begin with. So that's kind of, that's kind of where President Trump 
has a lot of support in that elderly, mainly white population um, who live there. But there's also a big, a big Hispanic population, particularly Cubans. Um, and I think that'll, that'll have, they'll have a big impact on the election as well, because while in general, I feel like Latinos usually vote Democratic. In the case of Cubans, it's a little different because Cubans, because Cubans, obviously they fled Cuba. The, the socialism is kind of a turnoff for them because of Fidel Castro's reign there. So I think Trump's message of the Democrats being left-wing radicals is something that he's really trying to pan pander to the Cubans there. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it'll be in 2018, their elections were extremely close for governor and Senate. Like they had to go to a recount. Um, it was separated by less than a percentage point. So I think that state is going to be extremely, extremely close and going to be one of the factors that decides who wins. Um, I have to agree with that. Um, for me though, it's Pennsylvania is the the crux of the election. And look, there's a stat that says um, if Trump wins Pennsylvania, he has an 84% chance to win the election. If Biden wins Pennsylvania, he has a 98% or 96%, one of those, one of the two percent chance to win the election, just depending on Pennsylvania. Um, and look, it's Trump won by less than a percentage point back in 2016. Um, and in 2018, uh, the districts were split in the midterms between Democrats and Republicans. They were split evenly nine and nine for each. They have one Democratic and one Republican senator um, in Pennsylvania. And look, they have these big Democratic towns, especially um, Philadelphia, who, which is a pretty progressive town, and Pittsburgh, which is a very labor union friendly town, which is um, a Democratic, which has been a Democratic stronghold for years i believe um and uh look it's it's going to be close it has the makings out to be just a tight tight race republicans have registered more voters there than democrats new voters that is um and uh and yeah it's going to be really interesting because of that, that divide between those metro areas and the super factory towns, one of which my grandmother lives in and my grandfather, Hershey, Pennsylvania, where they make the chocolate. Factory town, white workers, very Trump. Um, and the, the, the difference, the contrast between those, the metro areas and the rural areas is going to be a whole um, theme throughout the election and a microcosm, which is in Pennsylvania. So, um, and then one last thing is that the last couple of days, the Supreme Court ruled that Pennsylvania cannot reject ballots due to signatures match not matching on file, which is a big win for um, for voters uh, casting uh, mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. So that's the state that I'll be looking closely on. Um, that's interesting analysis. Um, can I ask you, have you have you like spoken to your grandparents? And if you have kind of what do they what do they think is kind of what's what's it looking like on kind of on the ground there 10 days out? I haven't spoken to them. I'll definitely be doing that um, soon. But look, there, it's it's such, it's so hard to tell because obviously there in Harrisburg um, and Hershey, which is um, the capital area of Pennsylvania, and it's so different from those um, big cities that there's just I think there's just no way to tell um, which way it's going to go, and clearly. The state is of utmost importance for both candidates. Biden, I think, had a speech there a couple of days ago. Trump's had a couple rallies there in the last couple of days. It's crucial, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean, so I feel like I feel like so much focus on this election and focusing on swing states are states that voted for Obama twice and then flipped to President Trump. But I think. I think a, something that's also some, a couple of states that are also important are states like Arizona, in which have reliably voted Republican for so long, but have been kind of due to changing demographics, been trending and trending closer to the left, and that they might flip this year. And and yeah, Arizona, as I said, Arizona is definitely a good example of that. We talked about it on episode one, I believe, briefly because he Cole just come from there. But Arizona has only voted; they've only voted Democratic once since 1952. I believe that was Bill Clinton, but. It was one of the few states that Hillary Clinton actually improved on Obama's performance. Like in, in the 2016 election, she did better than Obama had done there in either of his two years. Um, and I think I think it's really due to 
do the changing demographics there. Obviously, they have a sizable Latino population. Um, they have, and um, but but it's different than Florida in that they're they're border they border Mexico. So kind of Trump's Trump's policies on things like the border wall and family separation have much more of a direct impact on people who live in Arizona. Um, they also have a large Native American population, which is a group that's not like it's not like a big big demographic, but it's actually a pretty important one in states like Arizona because historically Native Americans have voted Democratic, but President Trump has in like recent weeks and months, he's really tried to bolster up support from Native Americans by signing things in, I think it's called like Savannah's Law he signed recently that kind of tries to address um, like missing missing Native American women from reservations. So I think he's really, he's really that's, that's a group that's not really reported on and it'll be interesting what their effect is. But going back, going back to the main point, I think Arizona is going to be, be one of the more important states and I think when the results come in from Arizona, it'll kind of show if it's a good night for Biden or a good night for Trump. Absolutely. I mean, you know my take. If you've watched episode one, you know my take on Arizona, that the big lead that they show Biden has there is, I can't believe it because um, there's so much Trump signs everywhere. Do you really think think the silent majority is kind of active in Arizona? The silent, you mean silent majority for Trump? Yeah. Yeah. I'll let the media refers to it. Yeah. Well, they're definitely loud in Arizona because it you cannot go a single stoplight without seeing a massive Trump sign somewhere in the intersection or lining the road. But um, I think the other state that I'll be paying attention to is Minnesota. And obviously, polls are all over the place in Minnesota. Some have them, um, Biden. With three-point leads, some have him as a highest 12-point lead in Minnesota. And look, this state is really, really interesting because it's projected to go to Hillary by five points, I believe it was, but it ended up only going to her by one and a half points. So Trump blew away expectations in Minnesota. Um, he also is spending over $25 million this week on ads. He said, I think it's Trump... His campaign manager said that Minnesotans will not be able to turn on the TV without seeing multiple Trump ads. Um, So they're going heavy after Minnesota. And that's a good strategy because, look, Biden, most people assume Minnesota is going for Biden. And it doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't ruin his chances of winning the election if Biden loses it. But it definitely does make the situation a lot more hairy for Joe Biden. So some of the factors in play in Minnesota is that rural Minnesota has completely flipped for years, for decades, all throughout the ninth or the 20th century. It was a bastion for labor unions and democratic ideas. And um, all of those small towns in western um, Minnesota outside the Twin Cities were ruled or were controlled by Democratic mayors um, and city councils. But a lot of those Democratic mayors, I think dozens actually have come out and supported Trump, those former Democratic mayors in, um, uh, in uh, Minnesota. And I think that shows the um, overall shift of white blue collar workers um, shifting towards Trump from from the Democratic Party that they uh, used to belong to. But um, Republicans have also registered more voters in Minnesota. I think it's something like 50,000 more new voters than Democrats. Um, and, and obviously the margin for Hillary's win was 40,000 voters there. So that could totally flip the election there. Um, and look, um, Hillary did improve over Obama's margins in the metro area, in Twin Cities, in Minneapolis. But look, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, there's only 2.3 million people who live in that metro area, and there's 7 million voters in Minnesota. And those rural voters are going to be the ones that decide this election. And you don't know how they're going to react to the George Floyd protests, mm-hmm. to all the unrest that Trump has been trying to play up in Minneapolis. And it's it's really a toss up here because it'd be a huge, huge loss for Joe Biden. 
Yeah, it's so interesting that the last Arizona and Minnesota, the last two states we talked about are almost polar opposites in that 10, 10 years ago, no one thought of them as swing states, I feel like. They're, Minnesota is very reliably Democratic. Arizona is pretty reliably Republican, too. And now, 10 years later, they're, they're, both, coming in, they're both coming into question and have a fair shot of flipping. Um, so I think, I think that's super, something that's super interesting. I want to hear, out of the four states we talked about, Florida, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Minnesota, what are your hot takes on those? Like, who, who's winning them? So uh, I'm going to go, I'm, this is why I picked Trump, is that I think he's going to win uh, Pennsylvania and Florida. Is I think he's going to win both of those states, and obviously that will pretty much clinch him in the victory. Um, and I think there's a decent chance that he could throw in Minnesota there as well for the reasons that I just talked about. Um, so that's why I'm I'm picking Donald Trump. So you don't think you don't think it'll win Arizona even after kind of what you said about the all the Trump flags there? Well, I think I think it's definitely possible that he wins Arizona. I think it's actually very very in the toss up category but um i think that arizona will not make as much of an impact as pennsylvania and florida so i'm i focus most of my analysis on those states and i think those are the ones that trump is going to win and win the election on interesting uh i'd have to say i have to say i think obviously i said i predicted biden will win i think i'll win Minnesota and Arizona. I don't think Minnesota can flip yet. Maybe maybe a few years down the line. But for now, I think it stays Democratic. I think Arizona will flip because of such just the changing demographics there. And the there's a center race there that'll kind of turn out support as well. Um, I think he'll win Pennsylvania too. He's from Pennsylvania. He has roots in Scranton, a historical working class town. And yeah, I think Pennsylvania, yeah, I think Pennsylvania has they still have a lot of metro areas. They still have a Democratic governor, you know. It's still a pretty blue state. I think 2016 was more of a fluke in Pennsylvania, and I think it'll go blue again. I think Trump will win Florida just because Florida is kind of a unique, one of the more unique states compared to all the other ones we talked about. So I think he'll win Florida. That'll give his campaign a little hope. But when results from elsewhere start to come in, it'll kind of be over for him. One thing that I want to touch on real fast is Wisconsin, and that's another Midwestern state that's been a part of that blue wall of Midwestern states that Trump finally crumbled. And if you guys know me, I lived in Wisconsin for 10 years um, when it was firmly a blue state. We moved there right after I was born. Um, I was actually born in another swing state, Pennsylvania. But um, uh, I moved there in 2004, and this is when Wisconsin was an up-and-coming state, one of the best places to live. Madison and Milwaukee were just awesome, progressive towns with awesome colleges, a really booming um, young adult scene. And and now it's just it's a garbage place to live right now because the Tea Party ruined that state in 2010 when Scott Walker. God, I just saying his name made me like get shivers up my back. Scott Walker, one of the worst people to ever be elected to office. The voter suppression in Wisconsin is ridiculous. Democrats are just being just manhandled by Republicans in leadership positions. And so that's obviously will impact the presidential election, but also just an example of the dirty tricks that Wisconsin Republicans have been playing on the state. This, um, and it won't make so much of a bearing for the presidential election, but that state is amazingly gerrymandered. It's it's possible for the Republicans to win a super majority, a super majority, 60, what is it, two-thirds of the yeah, whole state congression, uh, or Congress, um, by only winning 40% of the vote, which is insane. It's it's ridiculous, and that's the reason why they've cut funding to their university universities, cut government programs, cut all of this stuff that really made Wisconsin an awesome place. And now it's a bastion, really, of white supremacy and racism. And it's really sad to see because obviously I love that state, um, but it's it's hard to look at when their state house um, does stuff passes measures specifically to live, limit the power of a governor who was 
elect of a democratic governor who was elected back in 2018. Damn, dude. I mean, I'm, a, I'm literally my my university Wisconsin application doing like a week, kind of making me have second thoughts. <laughs> I didn't even know you were applying there. Okay, yeah. Go to Wisconsin yeah, yeah, Boston University. Still, I don't know. Madison Madison seems like a cool place, regardless of the rest of the state. Dude, so, but this the farmers market that they have every Saturday in Wisconsin one of the best memories of my childhood yeah. it, you'll be happy there the problem is that they've lost a couple of just world-class professors that went on to teach at stanford and oh. other top colleges that they could keep on staff because they had such a high um amount of funding from the state um but obviously that state they cut slashed obviously yeah exactly Damn, that's, kind of, that's tough yeah I, I think another state i wanted to talk about is texas because texas is like i feel like Growing up, whenever you talk about like the part of America that for coming from the Bay Area that everyone hates, it's always Texas. But Texas is getting really competitive. In 2018, Beto O'Rourke almost he came really close to winning the Senate race there, which is kind of unheard of. And I don't know. Do you think do you think it has any chance of flipping? I think it it'll be a miracle if it flips, but I want to hear what you're saying. I mean, people have been dreaming about flipping Texas for years. Austin, I see super cool up-and-coming democrat progressive scene in austin but i mean it's hard to and places in el paso maybe that have been kind of neglected by trump could um uh, could flip i think but look the the and houston obviously is a one of the biggest cities um but voter suppression is going on there that we talked about in episode one um so look it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough to flip Texas, and I just I can't see it happening. But if it if Texas flips, and Joe Biden is spending zero time there, I don't think anyone expects it to. Um, but if it does flip, I mean Trump, ha- I think almost mathematically has zero shot. Yeah, I think it's over Pennsylvania and Florida. No, I I I agree. I agree. It's kind of like it's it's trending trending in the same direction as Arizona, but I don't think I don't think it has. It's still there's still so many rural white voters who are solidly Republican that I don't think it can change. I don't think it'll change for a few years, maybe down the line, but, but, but yeah, it's such a, such a crazy time and the election's 10 days away. Obviously we're not going to know the results for a few weeks um, because of the time it takes to cast the mail-in voting, but we'll see, man. We'll see. Everyone's saying Biden will win. Cole says Trump will pull off a second upset, win a second term. I say no way. I think Biden's going to win. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, we'll see. And also the Senate races are mm. tightening up. Joni Ernst, uh, Mitch McConnell, hopefully he gets knocked out. It doesn't look likely. But Joni Ernst um, obviously just shot herself in the foot with that awful debate performance in Iowa. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's just music to a Democrat's ears. David Perdue just going full racist on the uh Kamala Harris pronunciation um and Lindsey Graham uh, oh god bro I freaking hate I hate Lindsey Graham so much bro I'm sorry I think I've said I think I've said this in a previous episode but I can't stand that guy I really hope Jamie Harrison wins there and he want he raised the most money for a uh a senate candidate of all time um in one month which is I think 50 million dollars but he is still down solidly by six points um so it's it's going to be a hard, hard election. Hopefully, Jamie Harrison sucks some GOP money into that race um, and away from other races like Susan Collins or um, Doug Jones in Alabama. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, that was gonna talk, I was going to bring up Alabama. I feel like everyone's kind of forgetting about that. But Well, I mean, I does he know, have a chance? No, really? no, not really. He's running against a college football coach. Yeah, dude, just, Tom, Tommy Tuberville or whatever. He coached Auburn, I think. But, yeah, I, I think – I don't think he is. It's it's Alabama for crying out loud. He only won because the dude, the dude Roy Moore, the guy who ran against, was basically accused of having sex with a fifteen year old and the like guys nine like, women. Like that. Yeah, it was it was not good. Um, so, Borat did a prank on him too. Check it out. Oh, I've, I think I've seen that. It's, yeah. Oh no, no, it wasn't Borat. It was uh, Sasha Baron Cohen for his other show. What is Who is America? Um, yeah. Well, well, do you think do you think the Senate's gonna? What, what do you think the end makeup's gonna look like? Oh, I think it's gonna be so <laughs> close. It's gonna be. I think it's gonna be one or two seat 
majority for each, uh, whichever way it swing or whichever way it swings, it's going to be imperative that I think Democrats, even though he's down in the polls, I have a good feeling about Montana for some reason. Um, okay. They have a really popular former governor running up um, against the Republican in, uh, incumbent, um, mm-hmm. Steve Bullock. He really, he ran for president too. Yeah, he didn't come didn't anyway well. close to winning the nomination, but he is really popular in Montana. So I think that seat is a dark horse flip. Um, but I think I think I saw a stat from five th- uh, thirty eight that um, set it's a seventy five percent chance that Democrats flip the Senate. So um, I see polls. You know, I feel about them, um, but. Oh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a close, close uh, decision, whatever way the Senate Senate swings. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep hopping on my my blue wave trend. I when I predicted the presidential election, I think the Democrats will take it by. I, I don't I don't know the I don't know a number two two at least like two or three. I think yeah. I think I think they'll yeah. But that maybe that's just me being an optimist and or maybe it's I me will, being just get shot down on. November third, but it maybe it's me just being cynical and reading yeah. too many YouTube comment sections. Um, but I think with that, that's um, that's all we have for you guys. Thank, if you made it this far, I mean, I don't know how you do it. Uh, you're an MVP. Um, yeah, you're really But be sure to keep on the lookout for our surprise for next episode. We're so excited about it. We're going to be definitely doing some awesome preparation for it in the next week um and uh uh don't forget to vote if you can yep get those get those ballots in if you're 18 and you're watching this um definitely vote all right we'll see you guys next week thanks so much for watching